Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamihira. In a world where the prostitution as empowerment model is winning, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk to women who are in or have been in the sex trade. And in this episode, I'm talking to sex trade survivor, poet, writer, and activist Rose Hunter about her new book, Body Shell Girl. I do think the ideas debate around prostitution is important also to understand the forces that give rise to and maintain the sex trade. But for me, underlying all of that, there needs to be an understanding of the material realities of the sex industry as experienced by the women who are being bought and sold in it. And the rest of us are kind of left to our own imaginations about what prostitution is and isn't. And our ideas about the sex trade are bound to be filled with fantasies fed by popular culture. Rose, who writes with incredible precision and insight, may correct some of those fantasies or at least offer an alternative narrative. I wanted to get into the book, but I wanted to ask you a little bit of background of how you ended up in Canada and what happened sort of after the book. Yeah, so the book starts uh, when I started in the sex industry, which was at the end of 1997. So I was in Australia, I was born in Australia, and I did my university degree in Australia as well and was very uh, drifting and lost, I would say, and very quite immature for my age. And I really wanted to get away from Australia. I think I I really hated myself a lot. And I, I sort of thought if I could go somewhere else in the world, maybe things would be different. So I just took a year's working visa to Canada, which was available for recent graduates with the idea firmly in mind that I was never coming back. That was my goal, to never come back to Australia. (laughs) So I went to Canada, got a job in retail, as was my plan, and lost that job and then ended up uh, not having enough money to pay rent in Canada. So that's when I had the uh, newspaper out in those days looking for work. And that's when I saw the ads for fast cash, no experience necessary, etc. And that was for massage. And I thought, I wonder what that's all about. Didn't have much of a clue, thought it couldn't be completely above board given <laughs> given the ads, but uh, the ads were in the Toronto Star, you know, so I thought it's not really a, a place for <laughs> anything too bad, I thought. So I went to my first interview and uh, found out what it was and they needed someone straight away. So my first interview turned into my first shift, which is quite common in the industry as well, which meant I didn't have time to go away and think about it or anything like that. It was just sort of do it. And then massage parlours in those days in Toronto were happy ending places. So nude massages and a hand job. And I did it. And uh, it was, as you know, from reading the book, it was a a strange experience. But I got the uh, money in my hand afterwards and thought that made up for it somehow. And I could pay rent 
with that. So 1997, so fast forward, I ended up uh, in a brothel for some of the time and I explained how that happened in, in the book and then escort and then I was in outcall massage and I got out of the industry in 2008. So I was in it just for just over a decade actually. And uh, in 2008, I went to Mexico. I, I decided to leave the country to get away from the industry because I'd tried many times to leave the industry and I'd always not had enough money and fallen back on it. And so I thought I've got to burn those bridges and go somewhere where I can't fall back on this. So that's what I did. It was very, very rough landing in Mexico and then I lived in Mexico for 10 years and now I'm now I'm back in Australia. <laughs> I just want to talk about the book a little bit, Body Shell Girl, which is an extraordinary book of poetry. And it's this story that you're talking about in poem form, which I found to have this effect of putting you right in that viscerally in the room with you in a very sort of immediate filterless way, which makes it very powerful. So the parlor, I'm curious about if you can talk a little bit about the pipeline, the sort of the massage parlor to the rest of the industry. The way that I experienced it, I mean, when I went into the massage parlor and I did this, I didn't think I'd end up in a brothel. That was not my expectation. I didn't think I'd stay in the massage parlor very long either. I just thought I'd get my rent and maybe some nicer clothes. I didn't have any good clothes for interviews and things like that. And then I'd get out. You know, that was as simple as I thought about it when I first got into it. I always knew it was very sort of abnormal in a way because I knew like how my body felt in the whole situation, which I think some of that I hope is communicated in the book. But sort of on an intellectual level, it becomes normalized a little bit. Even at the massage parlor initially, most of us didn't do sex with the sex buyers. It was uh, these other so-called services. So the the way that I, I got into a brothel was I moved across the country I had decided to stay in the industry longer to save for film school. That was the next thing that happened. I paid my rent and I got my interview clothes and then I thought, no, I'll get one more thing, <laughs> you know, which was this dream of mine to get in the, the film industry. I was always interested in doing things behind the camera, definitely not in front. So I went over to Vancouver to go to that film school. And uh, when I got to Vancouver, I thought I'll work in the massage parlours as I did in Toronto, but discovered a very different scene in Vancouver regarding the industry. This was about 1999, 2000, and I didn't find any massage parlours there. All, all I found were brothels. So it was almost like if you were going to be in the industry, you had to do everything. You couldn't do a little bit <laughs> like you could in, in Toronto. So that was my experience. Of course, I never had money in reserve or anything for emergencies. So I, I went into the brothel and um, that was, a, you know, it was a big shock to me. It was never anything I envisaged myself doing. Even at the massage parlors, I really didn't envisage myself doing it. 
And then uh, uh, that became my life, I guess. But again, there's this, uh, and this was common to a lot of women that I, I worked with. It's always this attitude that, well, it's just temporary. Even when it has gone on for years, <laughs> it's just temporary, you know. So it was just temporary in Toronto for me to get this and this. And then it was just temporary in Vancouver for me to complete film school right? So that was the goal. So I had the goal in mind. Fast forward, I did not end up completing school. And that was really quite devastating for me. Meanwhile, what had happened, uh, I was raped at one of the one of those lower end brothels. Not that it can't happen anywhere, but just in my case, it happened at a lower end one. Just my whole way of looking at myself, I think it just uh, was never good to begin with, as as I mentioned, but really got even worse. And I really, at that point, I thought, oh, well, maybe this is my life, you know? What had previously been unimaginable was was sort of like, oh, maybe it is my life. So I went back to Toronto and I, I went into escort and then, then went on. There is a moment in the book that really caught me. You talked about it just now, that if you didn't imagine yourself this being your life, and I think there was a part of the clients that you had with you, they liked the moment that you went from being a civilian to servicing them. If I can read a passage in the book to illustrate. So you're with your first quote-unquote client, and he says, I really am your first and I didn't understand why it was, but understood that it was so good. And I thought that was interesting. If you can talk about that a little bit, like, why was that so good? Yeah, thanks for picking out that section. Yeah, of course, at the time, I didn't know why that was so good. <laughs> um, so I've got some of my, my bafflement is, is in the poem. But it, yeah, it turned out to be very common. You know, not only did sex buyers want someone very young, as young as possible in many cases, I wasn't. I wasn't that young. But the other thing that interests them is being your first for, for some reason. I mean, I guess it's related to the whole virgin concept, which is popular over patriarchy all over. But one practical reason why men liked to be your first is because you don't know what you're doing yet and you might be a bit more pliable and more easy to take advantage of. And yeah, I mean, maybe there is something about, I think Gail Dines talked about this in your interview with her as well, about that idea existing in porn that it should be the first that the man is viewing and they get quite angry in the chats afterwards if it turns out she's been somewhere else before like this is just scandalous you know so yeah maybe it's a sort of an ownership thing or something like that I thought it was very interesting that there's a sort of excitement around the fact that you're just a normal girl as opposed to a professional right yeah yeah and that there's like, they are being the ones that are 
being with you in that moment. Yeah, and and that sort of ties into this idea that most of them had that they wanted to pretend that you weren't there in order to get paid. You were there because you'd do it anyway. You were there because you wanted to be there because they don't want to see you as professional. They want to pretend that the money transaction isn't happening and that you're there because you want to be. Yep. Right. And so you've fumbling or not being, you know, smooth about it is like a charm factor for them. Exactly. Yeah. I, I heard that a lot from sex buyers because they would complain about other girls to me, you know, like often when they'd give you a compliment, it would be in comparison to those other bitches or, you know, so that was sort of one I heard a lot that they appreciated that I wasn't as professional seeming as some of the other women. And then you talk about what a strange experience it is from your point of view, which I'd like to read. On the table, like a floppy white seal, ghostly and strange, and guiding my hand to this gelatinous part of him like a small pink sea cucumber. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was great because it says so much about like that it's not this like raging erection you're encountering. It's not this like masculine act. It's like something entirely different. Yeah. I mean, I think firstly, part of that is I saw the whole thing as genuinely strange. And part of that was my lack of experience overall, you know. And yeah, when I started writing that, I definitely was interested in how stereotypical it isn't, right? That's not the stereotype that that we get, but it's far more the the common thing. Yeah. And that it, you're kind of getting into the whole strangeness of it, you know, like just a human being laying there, not participate, you know, getting a sex act as a service. It really is. And I mean, this is one thing that really gets lost in the whole debate over this industry today where it gets so normalized, like this is such a normal thing to do. I definitely found it deeply strange and I don't think I ever lost that sense of it just being so strange. And I often thought of it as as quite ridiculous. It wasn't in terms of ridiculing the, the men either, Actually, some of these guys were decent guys. They weren't all horrible men that I saw at all. But I do think they're men who have been exposed to the wrong ideas about women and what it's okay to pay for and have been thoroughly indoctrinated along with women and everyone else, you know, that this is not strange, this transaction. But I think it is deeply strange. I remember often thinking to myself, it's not sex. It's really nothing to do with sex. It's this other odd category over here somewhere that we're doing with its own bizarre rules and just a very strange sphere unto itself. One of the things that really sort of viscerally bothered me is that they touch you. They grab at your breasts and kind of like grab at you to just stimulate themselves enough to have an orgasm, I suppose. But it's like it has nothing. It's clear. It has nothing whatsoever to do with making you feel pleasure. It's just 
squeezing something (laughs) or that's how it came off anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And just, and some of the, the way they did that often, like I think I compare it to various odd things, but it was just like you were fruit at the supermarket. And then along with that sort of strange groping, they would often tell you to to tell them how much you're enjoying it, you know. So there was a strange disconnect. Like some of them tried to make it what their idea of sensual was, but others just were completely blatant in the, in the way that they just groped someone in a way that I can't imagine anyone liking, you know, and then saying, tell me how much you like it. It's like, <laughs> all right. So you tell them how much you like it because they'll give you more tips that way, particularly in the massage parlors, you rely on getting tips because you either get nothing or you get $10 for doing the actual massage or back then you got $10. So the massage was $40, you get 10, the house gets 30 and then you make your tips on top of that. So if you don't tell them that you're enjoying it, you're probably not going to get as much of a tip. So you tell them you're enjoying it. Yeah. (laughs) And also that you do mention it in the book too. I forget where, obviously, your goal is to get it done, get him done as quickly as possible. Yeah. Particularly in the massage parlors, the ones that I experienced, there were a lot of men coming in, usually at the same time, like there'd be no one for hours and then there'd be like a few hours where it was really busy. And that's where you had to make your money. So it was in your interest to turn them over as quickly as possible. So, and of course they hate that. So they complain about it. And if management is around, they complain to management. In the um, brothels in Vancouver, for sure, they they would complain to management and they have no shame about complaining about the most sort of specific details. But yeah, they hate that feeling of being turned over quickly. And, and of course, when someone's groping you like that, you want to get out as quickly as possible as well. So it becomes this almost comical war <laughs> in the massage parlors in particular that he wants to stay there as long as possible and you want to get him out as quickly as possible. It'd be completely comical if it wasn't so harmful. You touch on several times through the book the danger of refusing, refusing a service or demurring. or So if I can read a passage. So one time this guy haggling over prices and pestering about the full service. We don't do that here, I told him but copying how I'd heard the other girls say it. Soothing, chirpy, plus second person plural. Not a personal rejection. Just something we don't do here. For anyone, so sorry. Yeah, I remember cultivating that, partially, as I say, because it soothed the sex buyer. And it's in the book the first time I am on the receiving end of violence for saying that I won't you know, do, won't, in that case, it was give that guy a blowjob. And being really shocked by that, that uh, someone could actually get so upset about that, you know, I was very naive. But yeah, so so that was cultivated for those reasons, to avoid violence. And also because you want them to be more inclined to leave tips. So you are telling them what they want to hear and saying no. Um, one of the managers of the brothel, who used to be a, a one of us as well, saying never use the word no, like rephrase it some other way. Just don't use the word no because it's an instant hard-on remover. Don't use the word no. And it sounds it like goes to the whole reason they're there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, which is to have someone who they know is going to say yes because they've paid for it. 
no isn't part of the picture at all. No isn't sexy at all for them. And you get a sense that a little bit of a taboo too, just like that's the thing you can't say. Yeah, and a taboo that that makes sense for your own well-being uh, in terms of not making them angry and getting your tips and uh, so that they don't complain as well. So it's one of those things that's deeply wrong, (laughs) you know, obviously. I mean, we hear it everywhere in, in pop culture, no means no, but it doesn't apply in the sex industry. It's always yes for men in the sex industry. Yeah. And of course, it puts the whole issue of consent into discussion. It's a non-issue because consent is already guaranteed. And I guess that's what's behind men getting so mad when they realize uh, they've paid for consent for this and this. And the woman or the girl or me informs them, but no, not for this, (laughs) you know, whereas in their mind, they've paid for everything in a way, or, or they believe that everything should be able to get paid for if they offer more money for it. It also strikes me that what they pay for is that I'm in charge in this situation. You're just someone I've paid for. And so you don't get to say. You don't get to draw the line. Absolutely. And then the the even more insidious thing is you have to pretend that's not the case. You have to pretend that a relationship among equals and you're there because you want to be. So they get it both ways. They get the situation where, in fact, they're in complete control, but then they have the control of being able to say, pretend I'm not in control, (laughs) you know, pretend you want to be here. It's a real mind game. It's a real power sort of mind game there. And I sort of fell into just doing what what they said or suggested, I guess, for my own self-preservation. I mean, just to make it easier for myself. It seems to be the thing that's at the sort of heart of the harm. You mentioned that some of the Johns are police, are in law enforcement. And you talk about one encounter. I'm going to read. I'm a law enforcement officer, by the way, he said and pulled up his pants. The fear of arrest versus the fear of having been the dumb shit who got everyone else arrested as well. So that was a very strange situation that was the case in the massage parlors in Toronto. And it was the case in Escort in Toronto as well, that they would have undercovers coming in. The thing that we understood in the massage parlors back then was mostly you were okay as long as you weren't having sex with the men or giving them blowjobs. The uh, massage parlors were, I think in the book, I call them hand job factories. And we all understood that police uh, left you alone as long as that's all the parlour was doing. But of course, sometimes a sex buyer would offer or however it happened. So it did go on, obviously, that there was more happening in the parlours than hand jobs. So that's why undercovers would come in. But it was technically all illegal and you weren't supposed to solicit. So you weren't supposed to say, um, here's how much a nude massage costs. Uh, I did it all the time and other people did it all the time because it was really hard to make your money otherwise, speaking in all these codes, particularly if it was a man who just wasn't as clued in. <laughs> you know, It's just very difficult. So technically you could have gotten taken in and the whole parlor closed down if you'd gone ahead and said this is how much it is for 
this little menu. That's sort of the background to that poem and what I was really worried about in that poem. And particularly, sort of typically for me, my greater fear than getting arrested was social embarrassment, probably in terms of, as I say, being the dumb shit who got the whole place shut down. And of course, as as happens in the poem, undercovers did come in there and they were just customers. I'm struck by that being a police officer in that situation almost gives you double power, you know, especially to those who argue for decriminalization, is that one of your very few recourses as a prostitute is to go to the law if something beyond prostitution happens, if violence on top happens. If you are then servicing a police officer, a judge, then you are sort of in a closed loop as a victim of male violence. You have nowhere to go. Yeah, I think this was made graphically clear to me when I had one particular sex buyer who I found who was a judge. He told me he was a judge and then he proceeded to act in like a really horrific manner and I thought, wow, you know, that was sort of a graphic indication of who is judging us. It's this man, you know, that was incredible to me. Yeah, so the police officer in the poem that you that you read from. Obviously, he was on a bit of a power trip. He enjoyed seeing that I was really freaked out. Was he actually going to arrest me and and uh, let that be a, an open question for a little while before uh, he'd uh, messed with me enough? And no, <laughs> it was just here as a customer. I wanted to move on to another topic. You'd talk about your life in Toronto, about the sort of pervasiveness of sexual violations, sort of these like casual sexual violations as women's universal experience and how that sort of get combined with your experience in the massage parlor. I thought of that doctor with his unexpected breast examination and the landlord with a porno and the other landlord who'd appeared at the door dick out and so many other non-parlor incidents as I call them, filed away as one-offs, strange occurrences. Mm. Yeah, I remember that being a big source of confusion for me at the time because when those things happened, like I think that's in the poem where this guy uh, has a hard-on is rubbing it up against me in the bus and I don't realise what's happening until like a while later and and then there were those landlords and to me because I was in the massage parlors what I thought was oh it's because they know that's where I work that's why they're doing this to me and even when I thought well how, how would they know I can't work out how they would know so then I thought well maybe it's just some kind of stink I have on me or something like really that's sort of where I took it as a, you know, 25, 26-year-old, I just wasn't making the connections that this is just what women normally get (laughs) in patriarchy. So I took it all very personally. And I guess, as many of us do, blame ourselves somehow in some weird way for it, because it was something I'm doing, you know, but it's not. It's just the ocean we're swimming in. As women under a certain age, I certainly get it less now. Yeah, and I think it isn't perhaps till we're past it that we can reflect Mm -hmm. on 
the pressures of those predatory waters, so to speak. I think that's so interesting because part of what I know from my experience was, uh, in general, it was just so hard to see a traumatic situation when I was in it. And I really needed the perspective to work out how bad it actually was. And that applied to the sex industry. But I do think it applies interestingly to what you're saying in that women who are out of that age bracket, like me now, can fully recognize how bad it was. Whereas if you're in that and you're getting that every second day, it's really difficult to admit how bad it is because you have to go on living that life. What are you going to do? So it's it's really parallel to the industry, I think, is sort of the, the trauma that patriarchy is as, as well for women. Like you finally get to some peace where you're not just busy trying to survive and keeping yourself safe. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have to live that anymore because I'm over a certain age. So I'm free to fully examine what that was. I don't think I was free to examine that at the time because what good would it have done? I would have just had to go back to it and I would have felt even worse about it knowing exactly what it was. So I think we do protect ourselves from some of these truths as women. Like I've I've received a lot of really wonderful support for my book, but I've also received some callous reactions to it, which really want to minimise harms in the industry overall. But I always think it's interesting when it comes from women because some of it seems to come from this perspective of, well, I've been objectified too and I've had sex I didn't want to, you know, sort of suck it up. And I understand where that's coming from because I think it makes women, the woman who's saying that, probably it makes her life easier to think that because she doesn't have to admit the full trauma of that. She can just say, suck it up. It's very similar to what I said to myself in the massage parlors and the brothels when something terrible happened. It's like, I'm a tough girl, suck it up. And I think there's a lot of women telling themselves the same thing. And so they don't want to hear this perspective that, no, this is not okay. We shouldn't have to suck this up. And I think it's also like our own inability to imagine a different reality, a different world, because we barely have a reference point for anything different. Yeah, I think it's that failure of imagination. I think that's one of the things I really like about the Nordic model approach too, is that it dares to imagine a different world. It doesn't just say, well, this has always been here supposedly, so we've just got to try to remove some of the worst harms when this industry is completely a harm. Radical feminists are seem to be the people who who are able to imagine an, an alternative way that things could be. And, and as a society, we seem to be able to imagine that for some things. For instance, sexual harassment in the workplace. I mean, that used to be commonplace. I'm sure people said that about sexual harassment in the workplace in the 50s or whatever. Well, this will never change, you know, but it has. And so it's interesting that some of the women who I think are quite uh, callous about other women's experiences in other realms, if someone was harassing them sexually in the workplace, I mean, they'd be straight to HR, wouldn't tolerate it for a second, you know. So it's interesting that some of those women would support the sex industry, which is sexual harassment. (laughs) On an industrial scale. Exactly. Kaisa Erkis Ekman, who's a Swedish feminist journalist, and she talks about the progress of the Nordic model in Sweden. 
and that 20 years in, you have actually seen shame being shifted from prostitutes to sex buyers. And that these days, one, former prostitutes speak openly in the press, lots of it, and tell their stories, which didn't used to happen at all. They were invisible. And then sex buyers are now, you know, losing their jobs or losing their reputations or or worse. So in 20 years' time, they've seen progress. That's amazing. Yeah, and I do think that's key. Like part of me thinks, well, maybe we don't want to shame people. Maybe that's not the best way to go about change, even for sex buyers. I really like one of the things I I mentioned in, in the article that I wrote recently for the ABC is at Nordic Model Now's website where they had that campaign of uh, cool men don't buy sex. And I really like that because it's a positive identification that uh, you can give to men instead of a shame-based identification, a positive thing for them to identify with. Yeah. I wanted to return to your book again. There's a moment which you talk about how men's touch can turn from harmless or even good to torment in like a moment. Hands like feathers that felt like tarantulas or tons, time stretched. How the assholes were easier mostly than the ones I liked, enough to wish this was not how I knew them. Yeah, time really did stretch in this show. It really does. I mean, it's the longest five minutes you'll ever spend in some of these things being groped in a way you don't want to be groped, for instance. And as you mentioned in the lines that you quoted, it was about a buyer that I liked as a person. And I did always have a harder time with the ones who seemed like decent people otherwise. And I never quite understood why at the time. I mean, now I think it's it's sort of obvious. It was just the disconnect between what this supposedly good man was doing. Perhaps it speaks to the the psychological difficulty of this work, I'll call it, even though I say it's unacceptable work. There's a physical difficulty, but then the psychological difficulty of pretending that you want to be there as they demanded. But then there's another psychological difficulty of it being an interaction with a person who you otherwise like not like in the sense of want to have sex with them, but just like as a as a human being, they seem like a decent human being in, in, in all respects. And I guess just being in a situation that I knew at some level was deeply wrong, even though I was really trying hard at the time to buy into this idea that it was somehow empowering as the popular culture was telling me. I really did try to (laughs) see that, but I was never very successful. I I always knew that it wasn't right. So I guess that was just that cognitive dissonance, I guess, between a nice person on one hand and it's really the situation that I didn't think was good for either of us on the other hand, you know, just the psychological stress of getting through that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's what comes through. Then another interesting thing. You talk about how you kind of lost the ability to have language to tell this story. Like you can do it 
but not so much talk about it, and instead relied on a script of sorts, if I can read a passage. And then there was relief that he didn't ask for details, like tell me why you love it, like many of them did. At which point my mind would go blank. The porn talk script I tried to memorize, cobbled together from what I've heard other girls say, gone. I had zero talent from improvisation with the men who kept insisting. I was then blank and blanker, and I felt like crying. Yeah, I was legitimately terrible at devising that porno talk that that I I talk about there. So uh, I did just have to copy others. And of course, I had nothing to say when they said, tell me why you like it, because I didn't like it. So, I mean, I didn't have anything honest to say. So then (laughs) you've got to cast around for for some of the, the cliched sentences that might be appropriate in that situation. And I always felt very stupid saying those words in that script. Alcohol helped a lot with that, with getting those words out. I already, I think, had a drinking problem of some description before the industry, but it certainly got worse during my time in the industry because it really enabled all that. And the alcohol helped me forget the stupidity and the ridiculousness (laughs) and just do it. I mean, words are important to me as it turned out, you know, as a writer, they are very important to me. So maybe it was more difficult for me to use words in that sort of dishonest way. I know later in the book, I say, uh, I care about words. I don't care about my body. I don't care what's happening to, to that, but I care about the words that come out of my mouth, you know, which was sort of like a bit of a provocation maybe, but I didn't value my body very much or at all at times. Somehow I hung on to words having some meaning, you know. I was always a big reader and, yeah, words were really, really important. I found it particularly heartbreaking because it was like you were having to distill your multidimensionality down to just one, like, rote porn script and having to suppress or disappear, like, everything that makes you a human being. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, it's part of the whole dehumanising character of, of the whole interaction, where what you're being paid for is not only to perform these acts, but to also suppress all other parts of yourself that aren't compatible with this supposed service. I think that's really true what you said. I really like that. You have to be this one dimensional. They're not interested in dimensions. And then obviously, so you feel a certain way that it's in complete discord with how they perceive you or how they may feel. And you write about that. My gaze hovering just above his dick, the gray drywall behind a half smile on my face, a zen-like imperturbability. Oh my God, LOL. But straight up, it was I was going for. Because what else to do to cover the full body, cringe and cold sweat, the desire to run out of the room and beat my head, roll around on the floor, shaking my limbs, making sounds like, and falling, that I did all that, but in my head. Yeah, that takes me back. I'd forgotten that passage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, that, that describes it. Just the, the discomfort. As I drank more, I didn't feel that as much. But yeah, just the effects that that has on a person to 
so thoroughly repress everything they're feeling to that extent. You just have to crush all that. Yeah. So you mentioned before that you spent some years in Mexico and then came back to Australia. What made you exit and how did you exit? As I mentioned, I I was always wanting to get out of it. I mean, for 10 years, you know, it was temporary all the time. It was temporary for 10 years. And I left the industry many times, left in inverted commas, and then that job didn't work out and so I went back. And the jobs didn't work out just because of the mess that I was in by that stage with my drinking. Just wasn't a uh, reliable person. And and one thing about uh, the sex industry is you can be completely unreliable and still keep your job somehow. It's not the case in, in other jobs. So that was a problem I had repetitively. So I was always wanting to get out. And I had this artificial time period in my mind that you can't do this past the age of 35. So I'd started at 25, doing it roughly 10 years and now 35 rolled around and I thought, you just can't do this past 35. I don't know why I had that idea because obviously you can and people do and I could have, but I had it in my head as some kind of deadline, uh, which I'm grateful for, for whatever reason that got into my head. I think I was drunk and high at at the time when I made the decision to get out and then thought, oh, what have I done, you know, because I did just pack up all my stuff. And I had that VA from way back before I got into the industry. So that was all you needed to be an English second language teacher. So that's what what I applied for and got a job in Mexico. And I thought this will be the way to do it because I could get another job, but I couldn't keep it in in Canada. And then I always always just went back to the industry. And I thought, well, in Mexico, I'll have no contacts. I won't know how it works. I won't be able to do it. I'll just have to make something else work. I'll have to. So I just burnt my bridges and it was just sink or swim. And unfortunately for a while, I, I sunk because I went to that job in Mexico and surprise, surprise, I found that difficult to handle. Uh, I didn't quite have the skill set that I should have had. And I left that job in a a blackout one night. The pressure was too much and, and I just got on a bus to another part of Mexico. And from there, got into a relationship with a violent man who was also an alcoholic and just entered this complete spiral of destruction that I'm really lucky to have survived. But I I did survive and I wound up on the door of uh, AA, found Alcoholics Anonymous, which is where I started getting help, at least for the alcoholism. I exited with no money, which from what I hear is quite common for women exiting the industry. Not only no money, but I had debt as well. And uh, I had all that trauma I was carrying. I had my alcoholism and uh, sedative addiction also by that stage and just just left with with nothing with with way less than nothing and also at that time I really didn't recognize any of the trauma that I'd been through because I was still getting all those messages that the sex industry was fine there was nothing wrong with it there was a job like any other. So I really didn't understand why I was having such problems. And I just thought there's something just so badly wrong with me and it's all my fault. And it took me years to understand really half of the things that, that had happened. Exiting was not triumphant for me at all, no. You mentioned AA, but how did you, I, I don't want to say heal, but 
you know, so yeah, recover. Yeah, I don't mind the word heal, particularly because I think it's ongoing, you know, like recovery and recovering in in the sort of ongoing sense and healing in the ongoing sense because I feel like I'm always healing a little bit. It really started to happen when I put down the alcohol. I was able to uh, start thinking a bit more clearly about the things that had happened. One thing I did that was really helpful was yoga for trauma. You've probably read Bessel van der Kolk's book on, on that, which I found that book that year as well. And reading that was really a revelation to me. And it was when I first started sort of cluing in that some of my dysfunctional ways of being weren't because I was a bad person or just messed up. They might be because of the things that had happened to me previously. So that insight was amazing to me. But then insight takes you away, but then only takes you so far. And then I think you have to do something that connects the body with your healing. So definitely healing is an ongoing process. Yeah. And the idea of publishing a book of poem, had that been a dream of yours or? I think sort of during my later years in the industry, that started occurring to me. Um, Earlier on, I I didn't have the self-worth to sort of imagine that that sort of thing would be possible for me. But then I started doing more writing and I thought, oh, okay, uh, maybe maybe it is possible. I had several books of poetry published uh, with very small presses in the US during those years that I was in Mexico. And then I had one published by an Australian publisher in 2017. Then there was the one recently with Spin Effects. But I, I steered clear of the topic of the sex industry or my time in Canada. So I always sort of thought there's a book here that you're not writing you know, because I exited the industry in 2008. I did try to write about this industry, but I was never able to to do it in a way that I liked or in a way that I thought worked. I probably started working on Body Shell Girl in its current incarnation in about 2018, I think. I want to move on to the ABC article and uh, just want to read a piece that maybe I can get your reaction to. So you say, the idea has been sold to us that saying something negative about the sex industry is the same as saying something negative about or stigmatizing the women who work in it. But that doesn't follow. If I describe my experience of working in the sex industry and others find that description stigmatizing, doesn't that say more about the industry than it does the women? And I wanted to discuss that because I think it's such a common and normalized defense of the sex trade. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I find that attitude curious. And if we're talking about stigma, we we touched on it before with uh, sex buyers, you know, uh, if we're going to have to stigmatise anyone in this situation, stigmatise the industry and the sex buyers. But yeah, as you say, I mean, it's the most common defence I hear. And actually, since I published that article, I've received quite a few messages to this effect from people who say, well, I hadn't thought about the issue too much, but I was in favour of full decriminalisation because I thought we want to be kind to the women, we don't want to stigmatise the women. But after reading your article, I've rethought that, which, which is amazing. It's what I was hoping for because I think if more people can be 
exposed to the issue from the other side. They see it clearly. I think it's a, it's an interesting way to sort of use that as a weapon. It's just a very uh, manipulative argument in a way to say, well, if you're against the sex industry, you're stigmatizing women, you know, and people are like, oh, well, obviously I don't want to do that. So, okay, yeah, full decrim, you know. It, it strikes me as a really good manipulation tool. But it's a weird one too, because you can use any analogy, say um, sweatshops. We don't say that, oh, uh, if we criticise a sweatshop, we're stigmatising the sweatshop workers. We're not. We're saying the sweatshop workers deserve better than than this. If we're stigmatising anything, we're stigmatising the sweatshops. You also talk about like how many are eager to dismiss your story because sex work is work proponents don't want to hear about the dark side of prostitution from sex trade survivors. They just don't want to hear the dark side. I mean, there's so many possibilities as to why that is. One of them, obviously, is it, it enables sex buyers to feel okay about what they're doing. You know, they can maintain this fantasy that, oh, I'm helping her through school or whatever. So, It enables sex buyers to feel good about themselves. It enables pimps to feel uh, good about themselves also. It enables society at large to do nothing, which is always easier than doing something. So it lets everyone off the hook, really. Yeah. And I also think that people who do talk about it, just speaking for myself, having not been in the sex trade, I feel that it is so easy for the uninitiated to kind of imagine this like polite business transaction that happens. Right. I mean, what people imagine or want to imagine seems to be the high class escort situation, maybe the the pretty woman inheritance, but they are an extreme minority of the industry. So when most people are imagining that as the first thing that leaps into their heads about this industry, I think what they need to be made aware of is they're imagining the Hollywood stereotype for one thing and also the extreme minority at best. And I think a lot of those women who who start off as high-class escorts get chewed up the same as any of us. But yeah, what, what people are imagining is a very unrealistic situation for the majority of women in this industry. Maybe true for a very tiny minority, but I even, a friend of mine who's who's also an activist sort of answers that sort of question about these supposed empowered sex workers who are around, like, she says, what do they have to do with prostitution? (laughs) Which, Which I think is a good way of coming at it, you know, because they are such a minority. So why are we putting such a focus on this extreme minority. And even though my understanding is those women defend what they have, they don't want anyone taking away uh, their livelihood. Radical feminism comes at it from a different perspective, right? It's not about the supreme rights of the individual to have this and never mind everyone else. You know, radical feminism says, let's look at everyone. I went off on a bit of a tangent there regarding your original question. Sorry. <laughs> I, I love tangents. No, and I also, this affects women and girls everywhere. To have a portion, a select portion of women and girls that get to be bought and sold. You can see the pervasive sort of spread of that idea in terms of looking at OnlyFans or something like that. I only found out what OnlyFans even was a couple of years ago. I was like, only what? I don't know what you're talking about. But 
Yeah, you, you can definitely link those things, right? Because it's a form of socially acceptable to some extent, depending on your social group, prostitution. Yeah, and it's being sold as liberation. Women are supposed to buy that as, as liberation. Along those same lines, how your contribution to the conversation is being dismissed, you talk about, I've been told on numerous occasions that I have nothing to contribute to this debate. One of the reasons given is that as a sex trade survivor, I no longer have any skin in the game. I think that links up to this idea that the existence of prostitution affects all women, not just women in prostitution and not just women who have been in prostitution. So it's about all of us. As I say in the article, it's a very narrow-minded viewpoint. And, and one of the reasons I think that is the difficulty of seeing your situation clearly when you're in the situation, particularly when it's a situation that is by nature traumatic as the sex industry is. So the difficulty of seeing that clearly when you're in it, I know that in my experience, I couldn't see it clearly when I was in it. I had to get out of it. And even for years after I was out of it, I couldn't see it either. So that's what I think survivors have to offer, obviously, is that perspective and the ability to see the big picture. I mean, when I was in the industry, it was very short-sighted. I was always getting out soon was always temporary. It was always sort of these band-aid measures and this short-term thinking, which I, I later found out is, is a symptom of trauma, that we can't look too far ahead or, or imagine these futures for ourselves. It was always like, how am I going to pay this month's rent? And that's a pressing concern. So I, I understand women are defending that ability to, to pay their rent at the end of the month. That's why I support the Nordic model, because it has exit programs that would help women to remove some of those immediate obstacles, like I have to keep doing this because I've got rent at the end of the month. There is just no doubt at all that the primary driver is poverty, poverty of any sort, temporary or permanent or lack of opportunity and resources in every case. Yeah. And I think that's why that full decrim and interests that be like to push that empowered sex worker model of someone who isn't desperate for money, you know. But the truth of the industry is is that women doing this are usually in poverty. But of course, the sex buyers don't want to know that because that destroys their idea that she could be there of her own free choice somehow because she really loves doing this type of work, you know. Do you find that you're writing, whether it's poetry or prose or any other sort, do you find it healing? Is it part of your healing? Yeah. First drafts are often very healing. Like when you first get it down and you get that flash of insight sometimes when you really start connecting things, that can be really healing. What's not very healing is going over and over the same piece to polish all the language and try to make it all as perfect as you can make it when you enter like draft 20 on the same <laughs> on the same passage but then you come out the other side when you've actually written it and then I think there's a lot of healing to be had and then of course when it's published there's a whole other world yeah which has been um when this book was first published I couldn't have talked like this about it and and that was only 2022 so it wasn't that long ago I really had a hard time with it when it first came out so it's been a whole evolution since then and, and one of the really healing things about publishing this book actually has 
has been uh, connecting with other survivors. That's been one of the amazing things. And when I first wrote the book, it was more, I want to understand how I got stuck in this industry for 10 years. That was my number one objective. And secondly, I thought, I wonder if this stuff can work as poetry. Like, can the sex industry and the actual details of the sex industry work as poetry? I thought that was an interesting question. So it was really quite removed from activism purposes. So all that is something I've discovered after the book was published. And what it's done is it's really given a purpose to some of that suffering for me, which I think has been really healing and connecting with survivors. But it's it's really healing having allies too, you know, people who weren't in the industry, but get it as well, you know, and are willing to work to to have other people see that as well. Yeah. I'm an immigrant to this country, to the U.S. I'm Swedish, Norwegian, and I came here when I was very, very young and vulnerable, for sure, because I came here by myself. I think it's, but for the grace of God, that I didn't, or not God, I'm not religious, but you know what I mean? Like a hair's breadth from really risky situations that could have pulled me in a whole different direction. That's so interesting that you say that. I've heard that from quite a few women, actually, who've read my book and they haven't been in the industry and they've said that exact thing, this could have been me. And I think it's going to be more of us the more it becomes accepted in our culture. Yeah. So thank you for putting your story out there. I think it's powerful. Thank you so much for your really wonderful and insightful questions and comments. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>